Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Firstly, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters. That's Jeanette Astrand, Melanie Mills-Powell, Claire Southerton and Alex Stone. I really appreciate your support and I hope you get a lot from your Patreon membership. Today we head back to June 1989, but before we get started on the case, I want to introduce you to the sponsor of today's show, Harry's. Harry's is great. I use Harry's to shave. Why do I like it? Well, I've got sensitive skin and it genuinely gives me the best shave out there. What I also like about it is I'm not so good on following rules. And the two best friends who founded Harry's, Jeff and Andy, they were fed up with being overcharged for razors. That's why they started their own company, bought a factory with great blades and the quality is amazing. So what you can do to try the product today for just £2.95 where it should be £11.50, you just need to go to harrys.com forward slash true crime and you'll get your trial set delivered to you, which includes a razor handle, a five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and a travel blade cover. So you support this show and you get a great shave as well. So please head over to harrys.com forward slash true crime. So let's take a look at the music of the day. Number one in the UK was the excellent Soul to Soul with Back to Life. I saw Soul to Soul in Sydney when I was a teenager and it was just an amazing show. Next in the charts was, along with David Bowie, my absolute all-time hero of music, Prince, with Bat Dance. And for fans of hard rock, Jason Donovan was at number five with Sealed with a Kiss. And in the US, the top slot was filled by possibly my least favourite tune, I've ever featured on this podcast. And as my Twitter and Instagram pal at desativa99, if that's right, will know, we've featured some pretty challenging stuff. Lots of erasure, huh? And anyway, this number one was Richard Marks with Satisfied. His spot at number one was sandwiched between New Kids on the Block who were hanging tough, see what I did there, with I'll Be Loving You, and Millie Vanilli, Baby Don't Forget My Number. And to think that some people complain that modern music isn't as good as it used to be. Oh dear. This was the month where Dead Poet Society, featuring the late great Robin Williams, premiered as did Ghostbusters 2 and the 16th Bond film Licence to Kill. In world news, we were just utterly horrified as the Tiananmen Square massacre unfolded in China. And in the UK, London underground workers staged their second one-day strike of the year. Not much progress there then. In sport at the French Open, Michael Chang beat supporter of the mighty Leeds United, Stefan Edberg. And in the ladies' event, Arantxa Sanchez-Vicario beat Steffi Graf. And just for my Twitter friend and F1 fan, at Klonks, K-L-O-N-G-X, in Formula 1 this month at the Canadian Grand Prix, Alain Prost was on pole, but the winner of the race was Thierry Boutsin. In today's case, we head to West Wales and the glorious Pembrokeshire coast. Have you been there? Oh, it's stunning. It's got a large number of bays, there are sandy beaches and huge sea cliffs where I've sat many a time watching the puffins when it's been too windy to sail. Pembrokeshire has a coastal park, which includes a 186 mile walking trail, the Pembrokeshire Coastal Path. At the end, there's a large estuary and natural harbour at Milford Haven, which cuts deeply into the coast, but 
you could argue has been ruined by the oil refineries that are there. It was June 1989 and a gloriously sunny part of the summer. Mike Callas was a policeman for the Pembrokeshire Local Police Force and he'd received a call from a member of the public reporting a strange swarm of flies near the cliff edge just off the coastal walk. Mike headed out to investigate. On arrival, as an experienced officer, Mike immediately recognised that pungent smell that he encountered on arriving at the scene. Moving closer, it wasn't just one body, but the bodies of both a male and a female adult who appeared to be about 50 years old. The male was close to the edge of the cliff, fully clothed, lying on his front with his hands tied together behind his back. The woman was naked from the waist down. The dead bodies had been hidden in an unusual way with hazel twigs and bracken. The bracken had actually been replanted over the bodies with the roots still in good working order. This was highly unusual and Mike thought back to how he was shown to do this by the SAS as part of his police training. This was because the West Wales coastline was notorious for drug smuggling and this was an excellent way for the police to set up a camouflage location to watch for any suspicious activity out at sea. As Mike radioed back for support, he wondered just why would somebody have committed murder, just here, off the Pembrokeshire Coastal Trail, on a middle-aged couple. Back in Oxfordshire, Tim Dixon was worried. It was most unlike his parents not to stay in contact when they were away on holiday. He called the campsite where they'd been staying, but there was no sign of them. Then he received the news that his parents, Peter and Gwenda, had been found murdered that morning in June by Mike Callas. Like Mike, he just couldn't understand why anybody would want to hurt his parents. 51-year-old Peter Dixon lived with his wife Gwenda in Whitney, Oxfordshire. Peter was a marketing manager, whilst Gwenda was a secretary in a local government department. As well as their son Tim, they had a daughter called Julie. They were an incredible, friendly, popular couple who enjoyed playing badminton and walking in their spare time. And for 15 years they'd holidayed at the same idyllic spot in West Wales where they could indulge their love of the sea, photography and walking. This was the first year they were completely on their own as their daughter Judy had gone on holiday to Cyprus which was the first time she hadn't joined her parents. On the morning of the 29th of June 1989 it was the last day of their holiday so they went out for a final walk before the long drive home to Oxfordshire but this was a walk from which they never returned. As police examined the bodies, they found that Peter had been shot three times, in the back, chest and head. Gwenda had been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the head. She was naked from the waist down and detectives believed she'd been sexually assaulted. There was a further injury to the left side of her head, which police suspected was inflicted by the killer to encourage her husband to give the details of his bank cards which were used on the day of his death and in the days straight after at local banks. The killer had the correct pin, so this must have been revealed by the couple, probably, police suspected, under threat of violence or sexual attack. Police suspected from the outset that robbery was the likely motive for the attack, as the couple's rucksack had clearly been searched for valuables and Peter's gold wedding ring was missing, along with the bank cards. Police were able to narrow the time of the attack to around 10am. When questioned, tourists on the nearby beach at Little Haven told of hearing bangs around that time on the morning in question, but they just assumed it was farmers 
in this rural part of the country. This was backed up by a man mowing the lawn at the local church, who also heard noises. But in such an idyllic rural part of Wales, you wouldn't for a moment think it could have been anything more sinister. Reaction to this case was strong. It not only shocked the local community, but it made national headlines. This just wasn't the sort of thing that happened to a middle-aged couple walking a coastal path. Just what on earth could the motive have been? Friends and family were certain that there were no shady secrets that could have led to their deaths. Over 6,000 statements were taken from a large number of witnesses, both locally and all over Europe. Anybody holidaying in the area nearby was traced, as was anyone who had signed the visitor book at the local church. Although robbery was the likely answer, detectives were open to any potential leads. The newspaper Wells Online carried an article about the appeal made on the TV programme Crime Watch, which using the photo of it of a scruffy, wild-looking, bushy-haired man seen using Mr Dixon's cash card, appealed for sightings and then took a record 380 calls before midnight and nearly 1,200 more in the next few days. This included one of great interest to the police, from a lorry driver who thought he'd given a German man a lift along the M4 to Neath. The police contacted all the youth hostels in the area, drew up a shortlist of young male Germans from the Stuttgart area, contacted Interpol, the German Youth Hostel Association, and 50 different media outlets in Germany, and finally they traced their man. But he wasn't able to progress the inquiry. He knew nothing. Peter Dixon's camera had been left by his body, and officers poured over the photographs the couple had taken, looking for any clues of where they'd been or anyone they may have inadvertently captured in the photograph. For example, they might have innocently captured a drug deal for one of their photos. To show how seriously this was taken, police even enlarged a picture of a Hereford cow so they could read the number on its ear tag and clarify its location. But further inquiries soon meant that the cow was eliminated from further investigation. As no breakthrough came, detectives considered all potential theories, however wild they first appeared. As we know from listening to this podcast, fact is often much stranger than fiction. One theory was that the couple had been murdered after stumbling upon IRA arms just off the coastal path. A local man recently had seen wires and switches in the ground and it transpired that this was part of a collection of weapons that had been stashed by the IRA, who at the time were very much in the midst of their campaign of terror. The police took this lead seriously enough that when the following year two IRA men were jailed for 30 years in connection to this, officers from the inquiry visited the IRA men in prison to ask them if they'd been involved and maybe the Dixons had just stumbled upon it. Unsurprisingly for the IRA, the two men refused to help. As the trial went cold, detectives began to look at other unsolved crimes in the local area. Maybe the same person could be responsible One that they particularly focused on took place in nearby Milford Haven, just six miles or so away from where Peter and Gwenda were found. In 1985, wealthy farmer, 58-year-old Richard Thomas, lived with his sister, 56-year-old Helen, at a large isolated house called Scoverston Manor. Just three days before Christmas, they were both shot dead at their home, before the killer tried to destroy evidence by setting fire to the property. When the fire service arrived at the house, they were met with a terrible scene. 
Helen had been bound and gagged before being shot in the head at point-blank range. Richard had suffered a fatal gunshot wound to the right lower abdomen, again fired at point-blank range. The muzzle of the gun was held tightly against the body. Can you actually imagine the scene that detectives found? Not just what they could see with their eyes, but the smells. Detectives initially thought that the deaths could have been due to a family disagreement, or possibly due to Richard's homosexuality, which was something he didn't reveal publicly. As you can imagine, 30 years ago in a small community, some attitudes were very different towards sexuality. But the detective leading the inquiry was convinced that the murder was due to Richard finding an intruder intent on burglary. He commented that Richard would certainly not have let anyone get away with burgling his home, as that just wasn't the sort of person he was. He'd have defended it to the very, very end. A large reward was offered for information leading to conviction, and police placed over 100 officers on the investigation. But the inquiry made incredibly slow progress. Following statements from witnesses, police did talk of a man described as being connected with the crime, but this man was never tracked down. Police had lots of information on this case and the Dixons, but no clear leads. Due to the isolation of where the Thomases lived and the location of where the Dixons were murdered, police strongly suspected that the killer was local. There were many suspects that were eliminated from the inquiries, but one man was of particular interest. He was a local man named John Cooper. Cooper was born in Milford Haven, leaving grammar school at the age of 15, when he then studied practical subjects, carpentry and upholstery. On the 11th of July 1966, he married Patricia and they had a son Adrian and a daughter, Teresa. There's a large oil refinery at Milford Haven, as I've said, and by 1978, Cooper had taken a role as a welder's mate there. It was a steady role that would pay his bills, but frankly it was never going to net him a fortune. Now this wasn't enough for a young John Cooper, who dreamt of being wealthy and he used some of his salary to gamble. This seemed to pay off for him in 1978, when a 50p gamble at a newspaper's Spot the Ball competition won him £94,000 and a car. Wow, Spot the Ball, is that still going? And that amount of money, 30 years ago, that was a significant life-changing sum of money. After going on a holiday of a lifetime with his wife to America, Cooper bought Big House Farm, along with five and a half acres of land. He said of this purchase, I didn't think I had changed, but people's attitudes had. We suffered a backlash. There was jealousy. He left his job at the refinery and became a smallholder at Big House, growing barley and rearing calves and poultry, and stabling horses, while his wife Pat opened a shop nearby. She was a seamstress. Cooper quickly realised that his smallholding wasn't a sustainable income, and so he contracted himself out to another farmer as a labourer. He sold the big house, and in 1982 he bought Valletta Villa in nearby Milford Haven. This purchase, interestingly, wasn't all cash, as Cooper accepted the balance in the form of a cabin cruiser, which he moored outside his villa, and also a diamond ring. From Valletta Villa, which he sold at a profit, he bought 22 acres of land nearby and began to build a bungalow. Meanwhile, his family moved into a small house, the rent for which was deducted from his wages by the owner, Mike Richards. The 22 acres he bought became known as the Beaches, and the Coopers were again raising calves, growing barley, 
and stabling horses, and Pat continued her activities as a seamstress. But in 1987, she was kicked by a horse and she almost died. This caused the Coopers to abandon the beaches and they sold it at a loss. In 1989, the year the Dixons were shot dead, there was a big bust-up between Cooper and his boss Richards, which resulted in Cooper being sacked and receiving a notice to quit the house. An obstinate man with a Trump-like issue of being unable to admit he was ever in the wrong, he refused to leave, claiming that he was protected by the Rent Act and he heard nothing more. He never paid rent again, but to his mind he carried out improvement works to the value of the rent. The place had been in poor condition and he kept all the records about what he had done to improve the property. The reality was that Cooper, following his win on Spot the Ball, had actually lost a lot of money through gambling. It's often the case, isn't it, people that you know? They have one big win and that's sometimes the worst thing that could happen to them. Cooper went from a relatively wealthy position, living in a big house with lots of land, to renting a small property. Detectives felt that he was a jealous, bitter and resentful man, particularly of those who had more money, and this was the motivation for the crimes they thought he could have committed. He was first questioned by police shortly after the death of the Thomases as part of a general trawl for witnesses. Cooper told police that he knew Richard by sight and that when working for another farmer, he'd been to the yard at their house, but he'd never been inside their house. He told police that farmers borrow things from each other. I remembered on prompting that I'd been there twice, maybe three times. But when asked when he'd quarrelled with Richard, he responded, I never said that many words to the man to fall out with him. He said that on the night of the 22nd of December 1985, when the Thomases were shot, he was at home and he vehemently denied having anything to do with their deaths or starting the fire that gutted their home. Cooper next came across the radar of police in 1989, when it was reported to police that he'd sold a wedding ring to a jeweller in Pembroke on the 5th of July, the day the Dixons' bodies were discovered. The killer had stolen Peter Dixon's wedding ring, and police suspected that this was the jewellery that Cooper had sold, although he denied this. He told detectives that around this time he would look after his one-year-old granddaughter on weekdays, while his wife Pat would go to work. There were witnesses who had seen Peter Dixon's bank card being used and working with them, police artists created an impression of a man who looked very similar to Cooper at the time of the murders. Interestingly, detectives had a really clear picture of how Cooper looked at the time of the Dixon's murder as he appeared as a contestant on the popular darts-based TV game show Bullseye around this time. Remember Bullseye? Well, if you haven't seen the show, you've got to watch it. It's classic British TV of its time, you can't be in a bit of bully, with the main prize usually, and somewhat bizarrely, being a speedboat. Tina Williams, a graphic designer at ITV, was approached by detectives in 2009 and asked if she could match the impressions of anyone who appeared on Bullseye in May 1989. She said she digitised the two impressions given to her and then watched five minutes of footage from the 1989 episode. Cooper appeared as John from Milford Haven and he told compare Jim Bowen that his hobby was scuba diving. He was with his friend Harvey Boswell but they walked away empty-handed after trying to double their money and losing. Once more, it was clear that Cooper's gambling luck had changed. Tina Williams produced a side-on image of Cooper which, the police argue, 
matched the impressions created by the artists. She said, I scrolled through the film, frame by frame, and found this profile. I made the match. But Cooper was adamant that it wasn't him. He added he had no motive to rob, as he'd won the money in 1978, so he is not in any financial difficulty when either the Thomases or the Dixons were shot. But the police knew that Cooper wasn't in the strong financial position he claimed. He admitted selling a wedding ring to a jeweller in Pembrokeshire on 5th of July, but he denied it belonged to them and said he'd been trading in coins, gold and rings since the 1970s. Unlike today, of course, there was no CCTV or other digital recording to confirm his story. As well as the murders, police also suspected Cooper of being involved in a violent sexual attack in March 1996. Armed with a shotgun and wearing a balaclava and gloves, a man confronted five friends aged between 14 and 16 as they walked through a field near Milford Haven. One of the boys thought it was a friend called Wayne and shouted out to the man, It's Wayne! The reply was, more sinister, Do I look like Wayne? The girl then realised that the man's face was covered with what looked like a homemade balaclava with large holes for his eyes. He was also carrying a short, double-barrelled shotgun and shining a torch into their eyes. God, that must have been just so terrifying. He forced the group to walk away from houses on the estate and further into a field and then to lie on their stomachs. He selected one of the girls, took her a little further away and raped her. He then returned and indecently assaulted another of the girls. One of the children present told police the following. He said if we all shut up and don't move, none would get hurt. He kicked one of the boys in the head and told him to stop moving and to keep his head down. The girl who was raped was crying. Then all went quiet for about ten minutes. He came back over and kicked the same boy again. Then he knelt by the other girl and she began crying too. The ordeal ended when he told them to leave, but with the warning that he knew who they were, and if they told anyone what had happened, he would find them and kill them. To make his point, he fired a shot from the gun into the air. But the police again had no evidence except for circumstantial to place Cooper at the scene of this crime. But Cooper's luck was just about to run out, as in 1998 he finally faced a jury for other crimes. He was convicted and was jailed for 16 years for 30 break-ins and a nasty robbery. The robbery was particularly violent as a local lady was violently attacked in her own home and over £6,000 of her prized jewellery was stolen. But the police had a real break here, as on a trail leading from the robbery to Cooper's home, what was described in court as a homemade burgling device, which could be used to prise open doors and windows, was found, along with a shotgun. Cooper denied owning the gun or the device, but he did admit to owning a balaclava found with them. Mind you, he had little choice, as scientists found his head hair inside. But he claimed that this had been stolen from a cabin cruiser boat that he'd owned. While he was serving his time in prison, detectives seized items from Cooper's home, hoping that when the forensic science caught up, this could convict Cooper of the four murders they suspected he'd been responsible for. Then in December 2005, Detective Chief Superintendent Steve Wilkins was put in charge of a cold case review of the cases. As they'd hoped, by 2005 forensic science had made huge strides and Wilkins was confident that this would provide the breakthrough needed. 
but he had some big decisions to make around the forensic evidence, as there was likely to be just one opportunity to run tests on the seized items. So should he take a risk now, or would it be better to wait until the science potentially improves still further? The detectives had a pair of shorts from Cooper's bedroom, gloves from his house, and a balaclava and a double-barrelled shotgun found with the burglary device near the scene of the 1998 robbery that saw Cooper sent to prison. Wilkins decided to go for it. He explained his thinking as follows. It came to the point in 2005 where I felt that, after having discussions with my advisers, there was unlikely to be further advances in forensic science in the foreseeable future, and we felt then was the right time. Two years later, there was a breakthrough they'd been waiting for, when traces of Peter Dixon's DNA were found on the shorts belonging to Cooper. More followed, including Peter Dixon's blood on Cooper's gun, and the prosecution was able to use fibres to link Cooper to all three crime scenes. This forensic evidence, combined with the strong circumstantial material already gathered, was enough for detectives. Cooper was freed on licence from prison after 13 years for burglary and robbery, but was charged with the four murders and the rape and indecent assault within months of his release. The scientific evidence convinced detectives that their suspicions were correct, and it changed the whole dynamic of the interviews. Detective Wilkinson describes this shift, saying, What came across very strongly was John Cooper is someone who thrives on control. Certainly in the early interviews, we had episodes of him facing the wall, lying on the floor in a fetal position, or exploding with anger. That change worked very well. We were very much able to get inside his mind, and in so doing he effectively points us in the direction of places that we needed to go. He is an individual who I think believes his capabilities are far above what they actually are. This was a feature in his life where he had ideas. Unfortunately, those ideas failed, and that failure led him into the spiral of offending which started off with quite low-level criminality, into burglary, and escalated to robberies, and ultimately into murdering his victims. Cooper was charged and the 66-year-old appeared in Swansea Crown Court to face the jury. He denied any crime at all, and he told of his anger at spending the last 13 years in prison for something he hadn't done, saying, I have an anger inside me that's hard to describe, but I don't use the negative side of it. I use the positive side to move on. In 2005, he had prepared an application for parole, but was told he could not be released if he continued to deny the offences. He said, You have to give them something. You can't go on professing your innocence and still get parole. I wanted parole, but I was not prepared to admit to things I hadn't done, he said, adding that at the time of the robbery, he'd been keeping a diary of his health as his doctor and a consultant tried to help him with his arthritis, claiming that he was not capable of robbing anyone at that time due to his poor state of health. To back up this point, he highlighted an entry in the diary at the time, which recorded how he'd stumbled into a tree, and another that showed how he was not well enough to take part in a darts tournament, which was very unusual for Cooper, as darts was a real passion. When he was released from prison in 2008, he said, he lived in a hostel in Swansea, before reconciling with his wife Pat and moving back with her. But in December, Cooper discovered his wife's lifeless body after her sudden and unexpected death. And on the 13th of May 2009, he was arrested and charged with the offences he was now facing in court. Cooper again denied the killing of Richard and Helen Thomas and claimed he'd never even set foot on the Pembrokeshire coastal path where Peter and Gwenda Dixon were murdered. As for the rape and indecent assault on the teenagers, 
Cooper said he would have absolutely no reason to be anywhere near that Milford Haven housing estate. Cooper's son Andrew was called to give evidence by the prosecution. Describing his relationship with his dad as very bad, he told how his father would disappear for hours. He described his dad as very strong, very fit and a loud, aggressive man. He said that part of his dad's routine was to go for regular long walks, usually after dinner, and he would sometimes have a shotgun on a piece of string around his shoulder, concealed under his jacket. He told how his father kept his belongings in a locked room. He said he went in there once when his father was not there, and he found in a metal cupboard which looked like other people's possessions. They included photographs of people he didn't know, trinkets and burned jewellery and coins. There was also the barrel from a sawn-off shotgun in a vice. On another occasion, he described finding a briefcase full of silver ornaments. Adrian Cooper was shown a photograph of a double-barrelled gun, which the prosecution say was found near the scene of a robbery his father was convicted for in 1998. He told the jury it looked very similar to the one his father would carry, and that the attached clip and cord used to be his mother's dog lead. The prosecution were adamant that the gun linking Cooper to the crimes was used by the man who carried out the robbery in 1996 for which Cooper was jailed. As we know, although he admitted to the balaclava, he continued to deny having anything to do with the sawn-off shotgun found alongside it, which was later found to have a speck of Peter Dixon's blood on one of the barrels. The prosecution argued that Cooper painted the barrel of the shotgun after the killing and then used the weapon in an armed robbery, the one he was jailed for in 1998. It was when the black paint was stripped away that a tiny speck of Peter Dixon's blood was found. He also claimed to have no idea how the DNA of Peter Dixon and his daughter Julie were found on a pair of his shorts. The prosecution argued that Cooper took the shorts after killing Peter Dixon, but Cooper said this wasn't the case and the shorts were his. Talking about the murder of the Dixons, prosecutor Elias said, The sheer horror of what it must have been like for a Mr and Mrs Dixon those minutes of captivity and before death cannot be imagined and certainly not retold in cold words. Who was threatened or shot first? Whether Peter Dixon was alive to see his wife sexually assaulted, we cannot know. But what we do know is that by hook or by crook, violence or the threat of it, sexual assaults or the threat of it, the murderer got the Dixons, probably Peter, since it was his card, to give him the pin number for the cash card. Bear in mind that five shots from a double barrel shotgun not 20 yards from the cliff path in mid-morning at the end of June this was someone very confident in his ability not to be detected and to keep the hideaway secret. And also confident enough to spend time after the murders making a screen, breaking and bending and snapping branches. This was someone who knew the locality and the paths to and from. But what he didn't take account of was that in the act of breaking and snapping branches, he would leave fibres from the gloves he was wearing, which in due course would be linked to him and other offences. In 2011, the jury returned their verdict, finding Cooper guilty of the four murders and two serious sexual offences. After the guilty verdict, Cooper remained defiant. As the judge condemned his evil wickedness, the killer shouted, Utter rubbish! What you've kept from the jury is going on the internet. Outside court, Detective Chief Superintendent Steve Wilkins said, John Cooper is a very dangerous and evil man, who for pitiful gain murdered four people and later subjected five children to a terrible attack. Straight after the conviction, 
the police announced that cold case investigators are probing possible links between Cooper and five other mystery deaths. But so far no charges have been brought. The Dixon's son Tim said the following, Today's verdict gives us justice, but there is no sentence the courts could impose that could ever compensate for what we have lost. And as well as the family, many of the police still feel strongly about this case after effectively living it for so many years. One retired officer, D.S. Reese, explains how he'd lived with these crimes every day for many years as a police officer. He said, I'll never forget the effect on the families. I met with several members of the families. I'm still in touch with the Dixons and I meet up with them each year when they visit Pembrokeshire to remember their parents. So what do you make of what you've heard today? John Cooper was clearly an aggressive, arrogant man who felt they would never be brought to justice for any of his crimes. And even with the evidence was so clear against him, like the shorts with the DNA on, he still couldn't admit to being wrong. I feel sorry for his wife Pat and his children as they were growing up. Imagine such a cold, arrogant man as your father. It must have been incredibly difficult. But once more on this podcast, our thoughts are with the victims, as we hope the survivors are able to move on with their lives in some way. What really concerns me, and I'm sure you, as people who are interested in true crime, is that you know and I know that somewhere near you, right now, is someone else, just like John Cooper, who knows he's capable of murder. It's just about when and who. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. Do join our Facebook group to discuss this case or any other aspects of UK True Crime. You can find the link at uktruecrime.com. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, where you can listen to all four bonus episodes for just £3, please head to patreon.com slash uktruecrime. Ah, and don't forget to head to Harry's for your shaving kit. It really is good. I'm off to download some Richard Marks and Jason Donovan. So until we speak again next week, cheerio and remember, stay classy.